Hello everybody. Welcome to episode 12 of Podcasting with Callum Baird. Is the black dog sleeping and being left to lie? Is the fog that descended now starting to lift? Are the crows no longer circling in the sky? Have you waved goodbye to your regrets and told them they won't be missed? I hope so. That was a wee poem for you that I wrote earlier this week to tie in with the end of last week's podcast where I ended if you got there. It was a long it was a long one. But if you got to the end, I ended it with a moment of silence and invited you to let the silence in and appreciate it and um, see what you could get from that moment of just taking in what was happening around you. And I suppose the reason for that was to see if you could get a moment of clarity to yourself. Now, clarity doesn't mean achieving a mental state that only an ancient Chinese monk and a badly written kung fu film is able to achieve. It just simply means being aware of what's going on in your mind or going on around you. And even if your mind is roaring with stressful, anxious thoughts, a moment of clarity to recognise that's really important because the mind is a busy place and it can take over and control you if you're not paying attention. So a moment of clarity to realise what's going on in your mind, even if it's pure stress, to realise that and process that and can help. It can help see what's causing the stress and causing the anxiety. And I hope if you were able to realise that, that you were able to put put those thoughts to one side for a minute. And um, that's what the poem is all about. And I hope you liked it. So, as you can probably hear, I have some background keys, some podcast music. And last week, I bought myself a MIDI keyboard, just plug in and play. Although it wasn't really plug in and play because it was quite frustrating to get it set up. I'd never used a MIDI keyboard before. It took me a while to figure out how to get it working. I had to phone a few friends who've got similar pieces of technology and they helped me out. But now that I know what I'm doing, thanks to my mates, I managed to plug in and play. And I've got this nice podcast music. I think it's nice anyway. I hope you like it. Um, Listening, wherever you're listening. And um, I I, I composed it to... I, I suppose I... Well... I didn't compose it for the podcast. I'll be honest, the chords that you're hearing right now are my higher music composition piece from about 10 years ago. Um, When I was at high school, uh, my fifth year at high school, my last year at high school, I would teach, I taught myself how to play piano. I would uh, get my my lunch and then I'd go and I'd sneak into the music department and they had little uh, sort of classroom studio type things and I'd sneak in there and I'd play the piano and um, 
never got told off for it. I don't know if anyone ever heard me, but there you go. And I teach myself how to play piano, and it was quite. Um, I really enjoyed it. But when I left high school, I didn't have a piano. I don't have a piano at home. Um, I never had a keyboard or anything like that. So that just went out the window. Um, but whenever I sat down in front of a piano, whether it was at a friend's house or at a gig or something like that, you know, if there was a piano in the venue, I'd always play these chords because they I'd just they just been imprinted on my mind because I rehearsed them over and over again for my higher music certification. So that's where these chords come from, on one one part of where they come from. Another part is they're very similar to the chords in You Do Something To Me by Paul Weller, which is a, a, a song of mine that is quite a, a favourite, actually, if I'm honest. I really like the song. I really like the uh, atmosphere of the song as much as anything else about it. So that's part that's part two of where I... Oh, excuse me. My mic's been a bit weird. Just straightening up. That's uh, part two of why the um, of where the um, song comes from. And part three is it reminds me in my mind's eye of a moment uh, in Kill Bill Volume Two, where uh, Beatrix Kiddo goes to Bill's hacienda. Spoiler: right before she kills him, and. For some reason, the song that play the song that plays is about her by uh, Malcolm McLaren, and for some reason, this th- in my mind's eye it sounded like this. But I think I'm getting a bit confused between about her and um, "Bang Bang You Shot Me Down" by Nancy Sinatra, which I think is in Kill Bill as well. It's either in, it might it might not be. Uh, I, I think I might just want it to be. But the tremolo effect that you hear on the main. Um, piano there that's about to play now here I feel like I've taken inspiration for that from uh, one of those two songs that are in Kill Bill so that's the three part of where this song comes from, one is a a rip off of Paul Weller two I've just uh, I mean I actually think these chords the the, the song, the higher music composition belongs to the SQA now and doesn't belong to me so the SQA probably probably within the rights to sue me for taking this but who knows i mean i hope they don't but it may get my name in the paper so if they feel like suing me um please just do get in touch um my email address is callum at outlook outlook.com and uh part three is uh of where the song comes from is about kill bill inspiration But the main reason I uh, composed this music or added it was to fill space in the podcast when I took a moment's silence to think about what I wanted to say, uh, get my thoughts right, slow down the rate at which I speak because I I feel like I rattle through things very quickly. I feel like I've got a lot to say and I don't always create, create not enough space or too much space. So this helps slow me down and really get help me process what I want to say. It fills the space, as I say, when I take a take a moment for that. But also when I take a moment to have a sip of water or a cup of tea. I've not got a tea with a cup of tea with me at the moment. Uh, I had one shortly before, so I don't really fancy one just now. But I do have some water, and I'll, I'll probably will take a few sips from that. And while I'm refreshing my palate to carry on spraffing away 
you've got something in the background and you're not just kind of listening to the digital silence in your ears. So I hope you uh, I hope you like the music and I hope it's uh, not interrupting the podcast. And if you uh, have any feedback on the music, let me know. Um, I said my email address earlier, but you can message me on Facebook or whatever and tell me. I sent this before I chucked in the podcast, sent it to a few friends, took their notes on board, and um, I sort of edited it and made a few changes here and there. And uh, this is what I've come up with. So I hope you like it. So, as I said, and as you can hear, I bought a MIDI keyboard. And I always wanted to buy a keyboard, especially when I left high school and I'd taught myself to play piano fairly well. Not, not brilliantly, but, you know, I'd made a start. But I could never really afford one. And then it was always an, always an issue of space and sto- space of where I'd play it, space of storage when I wasn't playing it. Um, and it was just one of those things I kept kicking down the road, kicking a can down the road on it. And I looked again earlier this year into buying one, um, mainly because of lockdown and just to, you know, something else to learn, another, the old add a string to your bow thing, another string to your bow. And again, I looked into the cost, and again, I decided I don't have space to store it, etc., etc. So I was building myself up and then walking away. And then a friend of mine bought a MIDI keyboard, and he was sending me some of his tunes. And they're really good. And I don't mean to sound shocked. Um, I'm not shocked. They're, they're, they're really good. And, you know, he showed me his setup, and I thought, Jesus, like, I don't actually have to buy a really complicated piece of equipment here to get a good sound and to get good sound and music um so i went and had a look again i found a key found a keyboard that suits the ballpark i want to spend because you know i don't want to spend all the money on a keyboard like i say only to find that it's i'm not as good as i was you know i have a real issue where i have to be good at something straight away otherwise it's not worth my time um i'm trying to work on it but it's it's really difficult um and I didn't want to um, buy something that I would get bored of quickly or be frustrated with. And so I didn't want to spend a lot of money on it. I wanted something fairly small and compact that I could store away. And I've managed to do that. I've got a nice space for it. And beside all my other music equipment, so I don't have to go looking in different places for all my different bits of gear. It's all, all where I need it. And I... Um, I've been able to write a few tunes with it, and including the one you're listening to right now. And I want to... I have an idea of making, like, uh, no no vocal music, like, just pure instrumental like this, without me talking over it, obviously. Um, and maybe putting it on Bandcamp or Spotify or something like that, and seeing what happens. Um, and I've, I've started um, writing some songs just now that I really... One of them's got a weird vibe that I'll probably just drop it because I've kind of taken it as far as it'll go, and I'd, it just doesn't sound right. It, it sounds like a, it sounds like somebody who's figuring out how to play a MIDI keyboard. Let's put it that way. The other one has like a, a, a like um, like a Sakamoto uh, "Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence" sort of um, meets 
um, oh god, what's the name of that film with uh, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson? Shit. You know the one I mean. It's got that sort of vibe to it. So I want to, I want to advance that a bit, a bit more. So yeah, I, I wanted, I want to do that and see what, see what happens with that. I quite like listening to music like this, similar to this, like movie scores, classical sort of music when I'm painting. So it would be quite nice to compose some music of my own to listen to while I'm painting. Um, and just have that very quietly playing, um, so, yeah, um, so that's why I bought the MIDI keyboard, and I'd also, I also want to try and add it into my more, like, singer-songwriter type songs that I, I, I write and perform, um, so I've got three songs recorded at the moment, uh, that I want to put out as an EP, but I might release as singles, just depending on how quickly I'm able to pull it all together, because, Next week, I start a course at Edinburgh University in contemporary art theory, and that's obviously going to take up a lot of time, and I won't be able to dedicate much time to promoting and pushing my, my EP or anything like that, so it might be better just to slip out a few singles here and there rather than put out a full EP and try to get, you know, people up, for, try to generate hype for it. Um, so we'll see, just see how it goes, see what happens. Um and see how it goes, and if I can slide the, the MIDI keyboard in there, that'd be good. But I've also bought a brand new electric guitar. Uh, I bought a Squire Telecaster that came last week, and I've been playing that over the last few days. I've managed to record um, a bit with it and stuck it into one of the songs that I just talked about, just mentioned. And it sounds quite good. And I think once I finish the podcast, I'm going to go and add a few more layers to it, uh, to that song. And I'm hoping that by the end of the week, uh, or may, or the weekend rather, that the I'm recording this on a Saturday, by the way. I'm re- I'm hoping that by the end of the, this weekend, I'll have a finished song. So yeah, two new bits of musical equipment added to my arsenal, and. Um, to see where it goes. I've been listening a lot to Ennio Morricone ever since he passed away back in July. And uh, I really, I've always kind of liked his, his his music and the films his music appears in. Um, so I'm really, um, yeah, I'm really, um, I'd be really happy if I could produce something that sounded one-tenth like an Ennio Morricone song. So we'll just see what happens. Now, this week, I'm going to try and keep the podcast a bit shorter. Um, last week was an hour and a half. I hadn't done a podcast for two months. I'm trying to do the, go back to doing the podcast weekly, or at least bi-weekly, if I can. I don't want to leave a big gap in it anymore. I started the podcast to sort of talk about the life of musician, independent, unsigned, if you like, musicians working on the music scene, other artists that are independent and um, who work on the scene all year round. And I wanted to talk about talk about that, I wanted to talk to other artists, musicians, poets, um, painters, whatever, 
and talk to them and have that as a sort of podcast, have that as the sort of podcast theme. But obviously COVID came along and interrupted that and I found it really difficult to just do a podcast week on week, especially a new podcast, especially when I'd said in episode one that the whole reason I was doing the podcast was for the reasons I just described. I found it difficult to justify doing a podcast to talk about what I'd been doing in lockdown because every time I recorded a couple and it just came across as like me you know how great am I you know the world's going to shit but at least I'm doing something um so I just I just kind of I just lost I lost my motivation for it I did one podcast outdoors I quite enjoyed doing it outdoors but I had to keep pausing and stopping because people were walking past and that's just what people do when you're outdoors you can't control the space so um again I lost my motivation but I want to try and get back into it um and keep it going and have an interesting topic of discussion each week relating to music or art in some way or another if I can do that so we'll just see how we get on with that but this week's topic despite what I've just said has uh not really got much to do with art and musicians or music it's a cathartic exercise in covid talking about covid19 now i actually recorded a podcast similar to this didn't put it out because i didn't feel like i had the authority to speak on it i didn't feel like it was appropriate given the nature of what I, what I, you know just what i said about why i wanted to do the podcast what the the nature of what i intended the nature of the podcast to be so I didn't feel like it was appropriate to sit down and do a podcast and talk about how COVID this and COVID that when I'm not an expert on it. However, over the last sort of two or three months, we'll say July to where we are today, I've been I've grown increasingly frustrated with the government strategy. I always have been quite frustrated with it. I think a lot of people have been. They haven't arrested the, the key issues. They took forever to organise PPE. We still don't have an effective test, track and trace system in place. Um, And at every opportunity, the Tories have sought profit and making money ahead of public, put put that ahead of public health. Um, But, you know, you just try to get on with your own life, I suppose, rather than getting caught up in that because it's not something you can really control and getting annoyed at it when everybody else is in the same same or similar boat is not um, not irrational but is um, you know it can do damage to you I suppose but now that all that we you know I'm sure we've all tried to meet up with friends and family again with the restrictions being eased a little bit we've probably all been out um, and used the eat out to help out scheme um maybe gone to a bar, you know, and try to have some sort of, like, summer to talk about. Maybe you've managed to sneak away for a week or something. And it all just kind of feels now like we're drifting towards a second wave, if you accept the first wave has actually actually ended. It feels like we're drifting towards a second wave now. We... I've been told that you're not allowed any more than six people in your house from and only two from two different households. 
and going to the pub now increasingly reflects going to a hospital cafeteria um, with hand sanitizer and you know and it's very frustrating to see that the strategy is all about getting the economy back on the track the Tories are obviously shiting themselves about Brexit destroying the economy and they're desperate for people to go out and spend money and try to limit losses I think that's what's going on but I also want to talk about the I want to do a cathartic exercise in why governments in the West by that I mean the UK and US France and Spain haven't done very well either but the UK and US are by far the worst why those two countries have fucked it I also want to talk a bit about how socialist countries, uh, countries in the East, as well in particular China and Vietnam, how they've ha- why they've been able to handle it much better. So I'm going to start my cathartic exercise in COVID nineteen with that. Now you might think, well, you said you weren't qualified, Callum. So why are you doing this now? Is it just to have a rant? Why should I carry on listening to you ranting? Well, of course you're not obligated to carry on listening to me ranting. This isn't really a rant. I'm. I would like to try and make a political point here with what I'm going to say, with what I'm about to say. So, if you would like a political take, please carry on listening. I do have a degree in politics and philosophy, so I'm abusing that degree to talk about this. I think, but I want to try and make an interesting point, and it's not. They're not exclusively my points. It's the points that other people have sort of hinted at and touched on, and I just kind of want to throw my hat in the ring and make my point because it's been weighing on my mind and it's starting to bug me and I feel like having it out there as a podcast um, might help and it might, you might listen to this, hear it and think there's good points here and it might help your discussion as well and help your understanding of what's actually going on. So, first things first, in this country, in the UK, I'm going to talk about the UK. I don't think I'm going to make too much reference to the US, although I do think there are similar problems about how the US, in particular how the UK and the US in general, ideologically and philosophically, views the state and the role of the state in society. Now, in the UK, in particular, the issue is and has been for the last 40, 45 years has been Thatcherism or or more more accurately monetarism and oh, hang on, I think my phone's ringing sorry no it's not in particular is the ideology of Thatcherism now Thatcher once said there's no such thing as society there's only the family um, and there's only work in the family I think she said no such thing as society now what she was trying to do there was undermine the position and power of the trade unions who had a lot of um, who had a big influence in the way the economy was run excuse me run and organised in the all, all the way through the sort of post-war period uh, this, and this, and but for Thatcher in the late 70s and early 80s 
So when she said that, she was deliberately trying to undermine the trade union movement. She was trying to undermine the values of the sort of social democratic society that had come, around, come about at the end of the war. And she was trying to encourage people to go out and become entrepreneurs, to disregard the trade unions and solidarity, and there's no need for any of that. There's no such thing as society. You know, you just go out and look after yourself, get a good job, buy a house, buy a couple of cars, have a few kids. The, the state will not interfere in your life. It will not try to engineer. All the state the state will do is free up you to... will f- try to free up more time for you to be entrepreneurial. And... What that did was... Set, out, set the bar very low for the state. Now, of course, if you're a Marxist like me... Or not even a Marxist, you don't have to be a Marxist, but you can see that the state... Actually, I'll make that point. I'll make this point a bit later on, because I'm getting ahead of myself. But when Thatcher says there's no such thing as society, what she's doing is she's telling people to just indulge them, indulge their individualism and their their selfish, any selfish instincts that we may have. And this is where it's from this position that you start getting people saying, oh, well, you know, we can't have a social society because human nature, we're all inherently selfish. And Thatcher is playing to that when she says, says things like this. But this has underpinned the, 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 the body politic in the UK for the last 40, 45 years, this individualism. Um, so that's part one of the ideology of neoliberalism. Let's put it that way. Part two is the state ab- absolving itself of any res- responsibility. I think absolving is the right word there. And devolving things to private finance, making cuts to local government so th- they are forced to also embrace private finance and tearing up community organisations and institutions, leaving it to, th- to think to charities, third sector bodies, um, and removing community ownership and uh community you know even even things like tenants associations are totally undermined when thatcher says there's no such thing as society so everything from institutions right the way down to uh grassroots organizations like a tenant tenants association and a trade union totally undermined when she says there's no such thing as society But also underpinning Thatcherism as a really negative view of the state as being too much of a, a, a f- trying to control things, you know, doesn't the state shouldn't have a role in the economy, it shouldn't have a role in housing, it shouldn't have a role in... It shouldn't have a role in allocating resources, that should all be left in the market. It shouldn't have a role in... Uh, regulating wages um although of course we do have the minimum wage but that was introduced in the 90s and it was a very piecemeal regulation anyway however anyway i digress slightly but the, the 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 whole the whole ideology has of thatcher has set the bar very low for the state and therefore has meant that the state takes a very 
limited role in society and that people therefore then expect the state not to play a big role in society. Now that's foolish at any time, quite frankly. But at a time like this, when we need the state to be strong and able to organise and able to lead people and operate effectively, 40 years of saying that the state won't take any role, play any role in organising society, and the state will voluntarily limit, tie its own hands. When the state then comes forward and says, okay, you have to do all of these things, otherwise a lot of people are going to die, all it takes is a slight knock in people's confidence and people will go back to distrusting the state, not listening to the state and questioning all these different rules that have been put in place and why they need to exist. And of course in the UK that's exactly what happened when Mr Dominic Cummings went on a 700 mile round drive to Durham for the Easter holidays then drove 60 miles for a day out to Barnard Castle, sorry, to test his eyesight. And um, after that, people, you could tell in this country, people just thought, fuck it, like, fuck it. If he's not going to do it, he's a he's a Prime Minister's own right-hand man, so to speak. He's not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And so people's confidence in the lockdown began to dwindle. People's confidence in the state strategy, the government strategy, began to dwindle. But as well as this, the Tories never put the full weight of the state behind organising the response to this. Now yes, they had the furlough scheme, they brought the trade unions and the CBI into organising the furlough scheme, vital that that was, that was provided. But they never used the state to commandeer um, factories to take over production to produce PPE and ventilators to mass produce these things you know the, in, the, in the second world war the state inter- and in the first but the second world war in particular the state intervened in the economy took over production organised production directed production to win the war the state should have done similar when organising PPE to fight against COVID-19 and help those on the front line first then have put some of it available into the public, um, on, on the market for the public to buy, and then have some available to be distributed freely to people who couldn't afford to buy it or couldn't access it for one reason or another. They never did any of that. There was even companies offered to stop making whatever they were producing. I think it was a clothing company, and the government t- turned them down. So what the Tories have tried to do is have state involvement but to protect businesses that's what they've done they've involved the state to protect capitalism and they've put profit and the the capitalist system ahead of public health and by doing so they've maintained the neoliberal ideology of there's no such thing as society they just go there's no such thing society we have to protect the economy and the state doesn't have any involvement in anything other and the state will take as very little responsibility as possible. And this has hampered our response to COVID-19. And it's why it's proving difficult still to get the virus under control, 
to keep the public on board. And what the Tories are doing now, by lashing out and blaming young people, by blaming people who are going out to gatherings, to who are going to parties, is just reactionary crap. Because we have a society where for 40 years we've been told to be selfish and look after ourselves and not think about other people, apart from our family and close friends. And on top of that, we have a state that doesn't that doesn't want to get involved in showing leadership or and responsibility, and only does so when it's absolutely desperately needed to protect the capitalist system. And people can see through that. And all, as I say, all it takes is one little nudge, and confidence is knocked in that. And I think the Tories. This is a bit of a hot take, but I think. Cummings went to Durham sometime, I think, mid-April, and it didn't break that he'd been there until May. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, it's my opinion, my take, that whoever broke that story leaked it, I think, to The Guardian, sat on it for weeks and waited for the optimum moment to release it. And they did so to un- to deliberately undermine the confidence in the lockdown and get the economy reopened so we could start making... So they, not we, so they could start making money. Don't forget the Tory party and its... its whole thing. The Tory party's full of people who have their hands on the levers of the economy. So that happened, the coming story came out around about the same time that Spain and France were reopening their economy and um, it's my it's my opinion that that was done to undermine the government and force them to reopen parts of the economy so that the money could start rolling in again and that's that's the state of play in the UK, that's the state of play, that's the state of the Tory party who claims that they are the, they've got the best interests of Britain at heart, that only they can govern effectively, etc, etc, strong and stable, bloody bloody fuckity blah. That's the state of things. Now you can contra- you contrast that with what's gone on in uh China, Vietnam and Cuba. In these countries they put the full weight of the state behind the response. They didn't fuck around. They mass produced PPE. They mass produced all the health equipment that was needed. They used all their civil society organisations from the Communist Party right across to local government and youth groups to organise the response. They've been disinfecting streets since December in China. And I think I'm right in saying, but it might have changed since I, I haven't looked for a couple of weeks now, but Vietnam have had about less than a thousand cases and no deaths and they even treated a British man who was at death's door and managed to get him managed to save his life get him back to full health and now he's back in the UK he was was a man from Motherwell in Scotland I believe and that was Vietnamese and in Cuba they, um, they did the same thing put the full weight of the state behind it Cuba have got a world class health service, health system despite their lack of uh, funds the um, Cuban society is a very austere society, unlike the Chinese and Vietnamese one which is a developing economy the the Cuban economy is very um, is very austere but what money the Cuban government has 
they don't invest it in consumer products, they invest it in total opposite to the UK uh, and the US, they invest it in health and education. I think something like 75% of Cuba's GDP gets spent on health and education. I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine the British government ever doing something like that? Spending 75% of their money on health and education. So, that's one reason that the East was able to, the, the socialist countries, and but were able to respond to the virus better than the UK government was the way that the state already plays a role in organising the economy it already plays a role in society the people living in these countries have come to accept and expect the state to play a role in society and show leadership um, in China I think in 2006 there was a major earthquake and they put the full weight of the state behind recovery, behind healthcare, behind reconstruction. In Cuba, there was a, a hurricane. I believe it was in 2008. I don't think it was Katrina, but there was a hurricane. And it ripped apart massive parts of Cuba's agriculture which is vital for for the economy and for keeping people fed and within a year Cuba totally rebuilt and re and managed and actually been able to reorganize parts of agriculture as well to make it more efficient and um, why am I mentioning that well that for me that shows that the these governments are used to are used to these governments these countries the people there are used to the state getting involved when there's a disaster, putting it right, organising quickly and effectively and efficiently. Whereas in the UK, people don't expect that. They don't demand that. They've come to realise that the state will not play that role in society. They question the state when it takes up a role such as that in society. I mean, let me give you an example. With the UK government and the governments across the UK have launched their COVID-19 apps. And the first thing that was on the news was people asking about whether or not this would infringe their rights to their data. Would, 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 would infringe on their personal privacy. Because they don't trust the state. They don't trust the state to have information about them. So that, in a nutshell, sums up the issue for neoliberalism and what it's the atmosphere it created towards the state and state institutions and state-led initiatives. But another reason, and this particularly applies, applies to China and Vietnam, as whereas the ideology in the UK is people like uh, John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, David Hume, Liberals, I suppose. Although, you'll have many people debating whether Thomas Hobbes is a liberal, but I'm not going to get into that. But their whole argument on the state is that there should be checks and balances on the state. Now, their history at the time they were writing was about the church and controlling the influence of the church in society and the church-led state. But over time, as we've developed as a society... 
they they're the the politics of people like John Locke, David Hume, and Hobbes, and the checks and balances on the state has come to inform liberal ideology and liberalism, and that means that the state has a laissez-faire approach to to as I've said already to getting involved in society, and that's the sort of political ideology that un- underpins and in my opinion, undermines uh, society in the UK and the West. Whereas in China and parts of the the Southeast Asia, the political ideology is Confucianism, as well as socialism and Marxism, but the one that underpins society there is Confucianism. And the Confucian ideology encourages the state to play a role in society, encourages a state to be strong and show leadership and take play a role in organising society, even, even playing a role in individuals' lives or the lives of individuals. And combining that with Marxism, that means playing a role in the economy too as is the case in China and Vietnam. So what I'm saying is that people in China and Vietnam, for instance, they don't resist the state. They're they're not as inclined as we are to resist the state getting involved in society's business and the economy's business like we do in the West. The first thing that, as I said, the first thing that happens in the West when the state says, we're going to do this, is you get people saying... 1984, draconianism this, authoritarianism that, totalitarian state this, we're on the road to fascism that. And in some cases, maybe there's a point to that. But when it comes to issues like COVID-19, that undermines our ability to effectively work to overcome these issues. And that, for me, is why the UK and US have fundamentally well the UK in particular because that's the one I've focused on the most but the UK has fundamentally failed to organise keep bashing my mic has fundamentally failed to organise the COVID-19 response and every time it's tried to show a leadership role and tried to show authority people have just disregarded it and they're just looking stupid now. I mean, they're blaming young people for the increase in cases. But four weeks ago, they were telling us to go and eat out to help out and spend money to help the economy and get business moving. And now they're saying, now there's a study out today saying that, that would, that's contributed to the rise in cases. And on top of that, what the state has done with testing, tracing, testing, tracking and tracing, they've outsourced it to pubs and restaurants where you go and eat and drink it's them that's to take down your details it's them that's to then pass that on to the nhs and the state uh, whereas in china and the east it's the state that takes your details it's the state that tracks you it's the state that gets in touch with you it's the state the state the state it's not private enterprise it's not pubs and restaurants that this time last year were pulling pints and ramming the place full of as many people as they could who are now saying to people, oh, no, you can't come in, and what's your, what's your mobile number, by the way, and what's your email, and, you know, there's people very suspicious about this, that about these companies then adding you, and I've seen people on Twitter saying they went to 
coffee shop XYZ in the next minute and left the details in the next minute they're getting sent fucking uh, offers so people don't trust you know people don't trust this they want in the in the UK they don't trust the state trying to organise things because it infringes on their freedoms their what's, what's called negative freedoms in political philosophy I ain't going to go into that don't worry you can google that google negative versus positive freedom and then have fun looking up somebody called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau famously said, Man is born free but is everywhere in chains. <clears throat> That's a trip down memory lane. From I've taken you on there for my political philosophy classes. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So, yeah, that's my uh, cathartic exercise and discussing the government strategy on COVID-19 but as well as this not content with undermining the state's authority and power the Tories have then turned on other countries who have got their act together namely China and Vietnam and at one point in the vi- in the the fight against the virus, it looked like China, uh, the UK and China were drifting closer together, particularly on the issue of PPE production. But now with the Huawei thing, and quickly on that, by the way, uh, China's role that's been played in the the five G production. The reason China's involved is because the UK government, first and foremost has uh, forfeited the state having any role in the economy, as I've said, and in, in techno- technological advancement and production. So it's outsourced that to China, who has, quite frankly, got the best technology, the best developing technology for 5G. The future, whether we like it or not, and this isn't the place to discuss it, or I'm not going to discuss it at this point, but the future, 5G is the future. You know, everything's going to have internet connect connectivity. It's going to have 5G. Everything from your toaster to your grand's hip replacement is going to be able to have an internet, be able to connect to the internet. And for the Tories to rip out the Huawei technology under, frankly, pardon the pun, trumped up charges of espionage is just a joke. And it's going to take several years to remove the technology and then another several years to take, take, put, replace it with technology that wasn't as good as what's been removed. So we're talking 8 to 10 years before the UK has got 5G technology rolled out across the economy. And even then, it will probably be like fast, super fast broadband. It will be to urban centres and you go anywhere outside of the major cities and you have to do a strange dance to get some sort of mobile connection um so that that's a quick that's a bit of a a, a bit of a, a digress slightly there but that's just a small point about uh the uk china relationship and, and as i say at one point it looked like we were drifting quite close to china we were following them quite closely they were they were each saying very warm thing each government was saying warm things about the other i think trump and the U.S. government got wise to this. I mean, they, the Trump and U.S. want to are, are are very much want to 
they need the UK, they need to be able to control and manipulate the UK. For the people that share Trump's worldview, they need to be able to control and manipulate the UK. So the UK courting friendship with China and the, U and the EU is a big no-no. And 5G was the UK's weak spot, so the US exploited it. And now UK-China relations are very, very low. There's also the, the Hong Kong issue, which I'm not going to get into either, because... I really want to try and keep this podcast at just an hour this week and not go over that. <clears throat> and we're now at the point where there's a growing distrust for China in the UK. And, you know, I really fear that the UK and is becoming like the US in its politics and its intolerance and its parochialism. Um... It's becoming, I feel like, to some extent, we're becoming a nation of nimbies. Um, and it's becoming quite exhausting, actually. But despite all the negative press that's been given to China, I went into the supermarket the other day. I forgot to bring my face mask that I normally wear. So I had to buy some face masks. No, no issue with that. I keep them in my car now as a spare, so if I go out and I forget my face mask, I've now got some spares. And remember what I said earlier about how the UK government has never attempted to mass-produce PPE or protective equipment or face masks or anything like that. Well, these face masks that I bought were made in China, and they actually had—they didn't have—they don't have any English writing on them. They're, they're all, it's all, all the text on the back is Chinese writing. So that's how desperate the UK government was. That despite all their attacks and vitriolic politicking and going along with the Trump position on Huawei and getting into a war of words, well, I'll say as much as this, getting into a war of words over Hong Kong and threatening to undermine uh, Chinese sovereignty in Hong Kong by offering citizenship, pardon me, they're desperate, desperately relying on China producing protective equipment to be sold on the UK market to people to control the virus in the UK. And I think... Um, you know, I think that... Um, that says says quite a lot for... for the... for China's role... The, the way that China sees itself in the world and... how it wants to be... perceived as being... a force for good. Now we can... I'm not going to... I don't want to get into a debate or discussion about that because it's quite a, a lengthy topic and because of the current political climate, it's become quite a, a contentious area um, to talk about. But that that's and that's the China view. They want to be seen as a, a force for good in the world. And quite frankly, where the UK government has failed, i.e. mass-producing PPE, the Chinese have stepped in. And I, um, you know, I couldn't help but thinking how ironic it was that we're supposed to believe that China's a big enemy, yet there they are. It's Chinese face masks that are going to help to control the virus in the UK, after all. <clears throat> so, I'm going to wind things up a bit now. I hope that the COVID situation doesn't spiral any further. I think 
nobody liked the lockdown. Nobody wants that to come back. But two weeks ago, we were at 500 cases a day. Last week, it was 1,500 cases a day. And this week, it's been 3,000 cases a day. So it's tripling week on week. Earlier this week, France recorded nearly over 9,000 cases. If it keeps tripling in the UK, we're going to have 9,000 cases next week. We'll see what the cases are on Sunday if they give us accurate cases. See, there you go. I'm not, I don't trust the state. There you go, straight away. How's that? How's that for a bit of cognitive dissonance for you? We'll see what the figures tell us tomorrow. Oh, and on Monday as well. But it seems to be doubling every seven days in the UK, according to statistic, statistics. And I feel like perhaps a second lockdown is going to be required now to get this back under control. And I can't really believe I'm saying that. And I don't really want to entertain that idea because it looked like we were getting live music back. It was supposed to come back on Monday in Scotland, but it's now been, I think, postponed again indefinitely or at least until October. And um, I'm pissed off because the reason we're in this position is for the reasons I've set out that the UK the political ideology that underpins the UK is one where we distrust the state we are encouraged to be individualistic and think about ourselves we encourage not to trust the state when it tries to show leadership and exercise some authority and we're encouraged to distance ourselves from other people and show solidarity and I mean how quickly did it take for the government and to and for uh, to turn on doctors asking for a pay rise how quickly did it take for people when it, to turn on to join in the government and attacking nurses and doctors when they were asking for a pay rise after the NHS heroics in the the covid-19 you know one minute we're out, outside clapping and thank you NHS the next minute doctors etc being denigrated and attacked for asking for a pay rise and that's the that that this is why we are where we are because of our political ideology in the country and it's got to change it's got to go we have to expand the role of the state in society we have to the state has to organize the economy it has to it has to organize the production of housing it has to better allocate jobs it has to better allocate housing it has to do something about climate change it's not good enough to keep outsourcing things to private finance to keep um leaving things to the last minute like uh ppe production but they've barely even done that if they've done it at all um they've bought in from china as i've already said and the state has to be seen as a force for good in society and not something to be feared and resisted otherwise when the next disaster comes along we'll just be right back to where we are and my fear if if we go into a second lockdown is well firstly i don't think any country wants to be the first to declare a second lockdown because that'll just send an absolute panic through the fragile political economic system of capitalism so no country wants to be the first to say we're in a fully we're in a full second lockdown. No country wants to force businesses to close again. Um, but my big fear is if we do go into a second lockdown, people won't adhere to it because the first one was so poorly organised and was so badly undermined by members of the government. I mean, 
it's this sums it up actually, and I'm going to end on this. The Tories took the fight against COVID-19 that seriously. They took the lockdown that seriously that members of the government went out and caught the virus themselves. Okay, I'm going to end it there. Thank you for listening. This podcast is supported by my patrons of the pa- of my Patreon page. If you'd like to become a patron, head over to patreon.com forward slash Callum Baird songs and you can become a patron from as little as £3 a month. All information is over at the Patreon page. I will spare you any more time and you can go and check it out there for yourself and pick and choose which tier works for you. Thank you for indulging my COVID exercise, my cathartic exercise. And I look forward to talking to you next week. I'm going to let the keys finish off this week's podcast and I'll see you again soon. Ciao. Thank you.